Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's show, we'll learn about a new program designed to improve access to mental health services. For treatment, you need, uh, at least this patient population needs a more extended and comprehensive outpatient treatment program. Then, we'll hear about a medication that can dramatically reduce the risk of contracting HIV. It's for anyone who's at risk for HIV. So it is a game changer. It's if people take it, you know, if the adherence is good and you remember to take it every day, it's over 99% effective at preventing wow. HIV. And we'll discuss the rising prevalence and severity of physician burnout. The consequence of uh, going to a burned out physician uh, could be that the level of care might not be exactly what the patients uh, would want or hope to get. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about HIV testing and a drug that can reduce transmission of the AIDS virus. Then we'll talk about physician burnout and how to build resiliency. But first, we'll learn about a psychiatry high-risk program that was developed in response to rising suicide rates. At a time when suicide rates are rising and access to mental health services is difficult, the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Upstate has begun a psychiatry high-risk program. Here to talk about this is Dr. Robert Gregory, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Amber. So can you start by giving us an overview of what the Psychiatry High-Risk Program is? Yes. Um, our department in Upstate had concerns about the lack of access for services for people who are most high-risk for suicide uh, or self-harm, particularly our youth. Uh, it's, there have been rising suicide rates, as, as you may have heard, in upstate New York and actually across the country, especially in younger age groups and also middle age. Um, Congressman Katko, Assemblyman Magnarelli, um, recently did a regional mental health report on the state of mental health uh, for youth in this region. And it really pointed to a very disconnected system of care and poor access for those who need it. And so Upstate wanted to do its part to help in that situation. And so we created this program for people who really are struggling with suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Very often they're in and out of emergency rooms or hospitals and really not getting the outpatient treatment they need to move on in recovery and be able to, you know, our goal is to be able to have them leave the mental health system and be uh, as crazy as every other normal person. <laughs> okay. All right. Do people, uh, would people find the psychiatry high-risk program during a time of crisis, or is this something that they would, I don't know, sign up for? Yeah, anyone, we're, we're right now we're... Um, we're uh, looking for people 16 to 40 years old. 
And uh, anyone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts and behaviors uh, within that age group are welcome to our program. And we'll provide very comprehensive assessment, um, including some free testing, and then have a consultation and come up with an individualized treatment plan. One of the unusual aspects of this program uh, is that it's very comprehensive and also provides evidence-based treatment. In particular, uh, we will the, the core of the individual therapy will be dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy. I we, definitely want to get into figuring out what it, having you explain what that is. Sure, a, a little no, bit more. Very but. happy to. It's uh, it's an evidence-based treatment um, that's been shown to help people who. Uh, especially young adults or uh, even teens who really struggle with suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And uh, it's Syracuse has become a national hub for this treatment because it was actually developed here, uh, but because of very promising results uh, in studies with a 90% response rate, uh, we've been able to, it's been approved uh, by the federal agency um, uh, or listed at least listed on its national registry of evidence-based programs and practices um, by the uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So that means people think it works or it's been shown, it's been proven that it does work. Correct. It's been, in order to be on that registry, it had to have an independent review by um, epidemiologists uh, at different institutions and determine that there's substantial evidence showing that this treatment works and works much better than um, what's available normally in the community. So uh, just as to give you an example, in separate studies, the commu- the, uh, if someone were to see someone in the community, the average response rate would be 40% for them. But with this treatment, we've had consistent 90% response rates. So it's quite a difference to get the right kind of treatment for people who are most in need. So sometimes, though, the first hint that someone's at risk of suicide is an attempt at suicide. So is it is this for that person as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, actually, many of our referrals come from emergency rooms or inpatient units where um, someone is maybe presenting to the mental health system for the first time. They don't have outpatient treatment available. There may be a month's waiting list to even get into any kind of mental health treatment. And so this program is available for those people. Okay. How does this work with um, CPAP, the emergency? I can't even remember what that stands so for, CPAP, but it's an emergency. Yes. Um, so CPAP is a, is a regional psychiatric emergency room. And it's located at St. Joseph's Hospital. And there are CPEPs throughout New York State. Each region has its own CPEP. So CPEP is one point in the continuity of care. If you look at the continuum of care, you need a place where people can go when they are in crisis and just need immediate stabilization and safety. Okay. Okay. So CPEP provides that as do emergency rooms 
uh, in other hospitals, including upstate. Uh, but for treatment, you need, uh, at least this patient population needs a more extended and comprehensive outpatient treatment program. So there may be some crossover where someone who comes to CPEP ends up needing services that might be available through psychiatric high-risk program? or Yes. Uh, anyone who's coming to CPEP who needs a referral for treatment, this would be one of the sources of referral. So CPEP okay. could refer them to outpatient treatment. Right. Uh, the New York State does crisis management very well. Anyone can go to the emergency room, for the most part, I should say. Anyone can go to the emergency room and get stabilized. Then some people need inpatient care, and that's a problem here in our community because we don't have enough beds for children and adolescents. And then, and then that stabilizes people too because some people need that. But at some point, they actually need treatment so that they can get better. Back to, And okay. that's what really where outpatient comes in. Good, good. All right, well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking about the new psychiatry high-risk program at Upstate with Dr. Robert Gregory. He's the professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here. So um, who's eligible for this program, and what's the typical referral process? What can patients and families expect if they hear this and think that this is something that they could, could make use of? No, absolutely. They can call the program. And I believe the intake number is 315-464-7187 and speak to our intake worker. And we'll is, also uh, have that uh, we'll have that listed on our website as well at healthlinkonair.org. Oh, terrific, terrific. And um, it's also on the Upstate Department of Psychiatry website, the program. Oh, perfect. And, and a summary of the program. So anyone who struggles with suicidal thoughts and behaviors who's age 16 to 40 uh, we don't take people who have a primary uh, psychotic disorder like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And the reason for that is that there are other specialized programs. Um, for, exa for example, Hutching Psychiatric Center has a very, very good specialized program for that patient population. So, uh, okay. so, so long as they're um, 16 to 40, uh, struggling with suicidal thoughts and behaviors, not a primary psychotic disorder, not developmentally disabled, uh, we should be able to help them. Um, is it covered by insurance, or do you need it to have insurance in order to be involved in this? Some parts are covered by insurance. Other parts currently are not. Uh, the individual therapy component is covered only by POMCO, and that's because the current insurance reimbursement rates don't actually cover, aren't sufficient to cover the program's costs. So what we're looking at now is we're in active negotiations with major insurers to try to get reimbursement rates, help them to partner with us uh, for this very vulnerable group of individuals to provide high-quality, comprehensive treatment. Uh, having said that, the out-of-pocket costs are not incredibly high, and there's a sliding scale. So for individual okay. therapy, uh, the out-of-pocket fee ranges from 80 to $130. So we're doing our best to accommodate whoever can come, 
Um, the medication management portion is covered uh, by insurers, and um, uh, we also refer for family or group therapy as indicated, and that's usually covered. Uh, and we're hoping to, as we grow the program, to build in family and group therapy um, hmm. within the program as well. So the situation may be different for each person depending on their insurance situation, but uh, yes, walk, walk me right. through what a person could expect when they call and say, I've got a, a loved one who I think you know would benefit from this, or someone calls and says that they themselves would like to know more about how to... Yeah, that's a great question. So they would get a call back from Carla, uh, and um, Carla would tell them more about the program and what it involves, and they'd be um, sent a packet, or they could fill it out on site, and uh, the packet includes some initial testing, um, and uh, that will assist with the evaluation, and then they would get an evaluation uh, by the therapist, and then if if they wanted a medication consultation, that would be set up. And the whole thing can be done really within one to two weeks. So is, it, um, is medication necessarily part of it? or We evaluate that on a case-by-case basis, Okay, uh, but we do offer the medication consultation for patients who want to explore that option. Or if on the intake, the therapist feels that uh, really a medication evaluation is indicated, she'll suggest that to the patient too. And then some some people, or will all people, be part of the dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy? Is, is everyone recommended for that? Yeah, in this patient population, most people can benefit from that form of therapy. Uh, if during the initial assessment we feel a different treatment plan is indicated, we can tailor that and, and steer them towards a different kind of therapy. Uh, but most, most of the patients who we've seen, in fact, all of them that we've seen so far, um, definitely uh, can benefit from dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy. And this has been underway um, long enough to see that some people are being helped by it? Yes, it's, it's been going several weeks, but we've already had people who have entered um, uh, get substantially better even within that short time. Good. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here to explain this program. This has been Amber Smith speaking with Dr. Robert Gregory about the Psychiatry High Risk Program for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, a medication for people at high risk for contracting HIV. Welcome to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. 
AIDS and HIV infection remain an epidemic in America, even as the number of people newly diagnosed with HIV is on the decline. More than 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV, and experts estimate one in eight of them don't know it. Today, there's a really effective anti-HIV medication available, but people have to recognize their risk in order to seek out this medication. Here to talk about HIV testing and pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, is Nikki Jennings, an education specialist in the Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Welcome, Nikki. Hi, thank you Thanks for, for being me. here. So um, what do you do in your role as an education specialist at Upstate's Pediatric Infectious Disease Department? I do a lot of outreach. So I'm the connection between the hospital and the community. We know that a lot of people with HIV um, don't know that that they're HIV positive, and we know that there are a lot of people who are at risk for HIV who don't realize they're at risk for HIV. So my job is to go out into the community, you know, to find people where they are and to try and build trust, connect with them, link them to Upstate so that they feel um, that they can come here, whether it's for HIV care but more and more so it's for those people who are at risk for HIV who want to get them in, get them onto this uh, daily pill, uh, we call it PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, so that we can keep them HIV negative. Okay, so really just trying to find that Mm -hmm. population. Absolutely, and and that can be challenging, and it means going all over Syracuse. I spend time in some of the homeless shelters, doing a lot of youth, uh, youth groups, after school groups, work in uh, substance abuse recovery groups to give them education on HIV. So really trying to go where we we might be coming across people who are at risk for HIV. Okay. Well, what's, um, what's your background? How did you get into being education specialist? So I did my master's in health education, oh. and my research project for my master's was looking at who is at risk for HIV now and why. And very soon after I started work on that, it became very clear to me that this was the field I wanted to work in. It seemed amazing to me, the statistics of who was getting HIV, you know, how disproportionately affected, particularly black men who have sex with men are when it comes to HIV. Um, The newest data from the CDC tells us that one in two black men who have sex with men will get HIV in their lifetime. And that's a horrendous figure, you know, one in two, one in two. And, and when we look at the behavior between a Caucasian uh, man who who has sex with men and a black MSM, the behaviors are are not really any different. So it's not that um, those um, black MSM are doing anything different. They're not more promiscuous. They're not less likely to use a condom, but they are at such high risk for HIV. And that really struck me as incredibly unfair and so I I wanted to be a part of trying to turn that around. Interesting yeah there's something else going on I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of research trying to figure out. Yeah and there's so there's so much to it than just HIV risk you know it's a whole um, it's a whole lifestyle um, there are a lot of um, racial disparities that that feed um, that problem you know it's it's things like access to health care you know um, homophobia um, and a whole load of other things that, that go into um, making that the case. Well, let's go over the basics, um, just about what HIV is, how it's transmitted. It's a virus, but it's not like a cold virus where it's spread through coughing and sneezing. But tell us, tell us yeah. about it. Yeah, so most people who get HIV will get it from unprotected sex. 
it used to be that more people would get this through sharing needles. The, mm-hmm. the numbers of people getting HIV from sharing needles now has dropped significantly. There are very effective needle and syringe exchange programs around. We have an excellent okay. one in Syracuse at ACR Health. So the numbers of people getting HIV from sharing needles has dropped significantly, despite the heroin epidemic that is raging here. And you mentioned ACI Health? ACI Health. They're on 627 West Genesee Street, and they have the syringe exchange program that's in Syracuse. Okay. That's AIDS Community Resources? It used to be called AIDS Community Resources. Now it's ACI Health. Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. But most people who get HIV will get it from unprotected sex. So that's okay. that's the biggest risk factor. And uh, so condoms are the... Absolutely. So condoms are, are going to prevent HIV. Um, without a doubt, if you are using condoms all of the time, that will prevent HIV. The reality is that we know that people are not using condoms all of the time. You know, okay. And that message, use condoms, has been the message since the 80s. You know, And, and had people done that, then I wouldn't have this job now you know this epidemic would be on the way out so while that still remains the message we have to recognize that that alone is not doing it and condom use goes so far beyond just protection for you know from STIs and one of the problems is that it's connected to so many other things so in relationships it's about trust it's about you know commitment it Condom use often goes so far beyond the, you know, the obvious protection. Just the practical. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And right. so that's one of the reasons it's very hard sometimes to persuade people to use condoms because it's not that simple. And sometimes people don't have great um, control over the use of condoms. You know, they might be in a relationship with someone else who doesn't want to. And, and in an ideal world, they would say no condoms, no sex. But we don't it live in It doesn't always work. Right. It doesn't. Right. Now, um all ages affected by HIV equally or do you no. see this more in younger no we are seeing this increasingly in younger um, in younger people um, often people are not diagnosed um, straight away so they might um, be infected you know as a 13 to 24 year old that's an age group mm-hmm. where we see a lot of new infections but it might take them into their 20s before they, they get tested um, so who who needs to be tested Everybody needs to be tested. Everybody who's sexually active needs to be tested. So from the, okay. the age that somebody is sexually active, and, and increasingly that age is dropping. Um, right. we, we don't like to think of 13-year-olds as sexually active, but a lot of 13-year-olds are sexually active. So from the point in somebody's life where they become sexually active, we want them to get tested once a year, regardless of what they're doing. One of the problems with HIV testing is there's a stigma attached. And what we want is to encourage people to just get tested routinely, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of, you know, whether you're straight or gay, regardless of whether you're transgender or cisgender, regardless of how many partners you have. If everybody just gets tested once a year, then we're going to pick up new infections. And is it is it just a, a blood test that yeah. you can get it from any doctor's office? or Absolutely. So you can certainly ask um, any doctor's office to, for an HIV test. It's a, it's a blood test. You can also go to a number of organizations in Syracuse and ACI Health, again, is one of them, where they'll do rapid HIV testing, which is a finger prick test. Oh. Um, and that's nice, uh, certainly for people who don't want to go and, you know, have blood drawn. And um, it, it's a it's an easy and quick way to get an HIV test. So there are, as I say, a number of organizations now doing the rapid rapid testing. There's a lot of different ways to get an HIV test, and it's it's straightforward the problem we have with HIV testing is that we attach so much to it. And HIV is a scary disease. Right. 
Well, I want to ask you what happens when the test comes back positive. But first, let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking with Nikki Jennings. She's an education specialist in pediatric infectious disease at Upstate Medical University. So what happens when the test comes back and shows that you do have HIV infection? So we're always going to do confirmatory testing to make sure that it is a true positive. A second kind of, Absolutely. Okay. We're, going to, we're going to check that that is, that is the case and that, that it wasn't a false positive. And then we're going to make sure that that person is linked to care. And this is another one of the things that I do is, is act as a point person between the organizations and the community that are testing and Upstate. Most people who are HIV positive in Syracuse will come um, to us here at Upstate for their care. So we'll, we'll link somebody um, to us here, we'll, we'll get them an appointment, they'll come in, they'll meet with a social worker who will help them if they haven't got insurance or if they need anything um, that surrounds uh, the, the appointment, the, the medication. You know, it's not just as, as simple as taking um, HIV meds every day. <clears throat> we want to make sure that um, they have, uh, as I say, insurance, housing, you know, that they... Um, if, have employment those are the things that help somebody who's HIV positive um, adhere to their medication stay healthy um, and and they'll they'll have an appointment with one of our providers usually people come in every three months to have blood work done to see how they're doing um, with when someone's HIV positive the, the two main things we want to know um, for their health and and well-being is their CD4 count so the amount of those white blood cells white that blood HIV okay. um, attacks we want that number to be high, and that tells us their immune system is healthy and doing well, and their viral load, that's the amount of HIV virus in the blood. We want that number to be low, ideally undetectable. So we're going to um, see, see people every three months, they'll be taking medication, and that's going to keep them healthy. You know, people now with HIV live long and healthy lives. I was going to say, they mm-hmm. live decades. Oh, absolutely. Right? You know, this is the life expectancy of somebody who is HIV positive, as long as they get tested early, they take their medication, they've not got other, other issues or other um, illnesses, is actually only two years different from somebody who's wow. HIV negative. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about this um, PrEP, the daily mm-hmm. medication that can be incredible, it sounds like incredibly effective if it's taken yes. as prescribed. Um, it, it sounds like a real game changer. Mm-hmm. Who, who's it for? It's for anyone who's at risk for HIV. So it is a game changer. It's if people take it, you know, if adherence is good and you remember to take it every day, it's over 99% effective at preventing wow. HIV. So it's for anyone who's at risk for HIV. And, and that can be a, a gray area. That's not a, a simple thing to um, decide. And what we try to do is to educate as many people as we can on PrEP. We want everybody to know that this exists. And right now, not everybody is aware that there is a daily pill that prevents HIV. So we have a range of different people taking PrEP to keep them HIV negative. We have, um, you know, people who are, who maybe have a couple of different partners who don't use condoms. Um, People, we have people who are in monogamous relationships that are worried that their partner may um, not be, may not, you know, be, um, with with just them um we have uh, people who have a partner who's hiv positive it's it's ideal in that situation um it's a whole range of different people um you know who are wanting to protect themselves you know in my mind it's a very positive way to protect your health 
Uh, it's a very smart thing to do if you know that there's some risk in your life um, for HIV. Well, if people are promiscuous mm -hmm. and they really don't know, or they, mm -hmm. I mean, is that, are they at risk, I guess? Yeah. We, we try to be very open-minded about who, who's a good candidate for PrEP because what promiscuous is to one person is something very different to somebody else. So somebody, one person might consider having two partners to be promiscuous. Another person might consider 20 partners to be right. promiscuous. So we really keep a very open mind um, and we want to give the message that if you're not always using condoms, you should consider PrEP. You know, okay. you should at least... Um, think about it, you know, think about your risk, think about whether this might be a way to keep you HIV net negative. So if you take PrEP, if you're taking it regularly, mm -hmm. can you forego condom use? That's not what we want people to do. That's not that's okay. not the message we're trying to give. If somebody is using condoms all of the time, that's wonderful. Keep doing that. You know, that condoms are going to prevent HIV and other STIs, sexually tr transmitted chlamydia, okay. gonorrhea, syphilis. So that's the ideal solution is to use condoms all of the time. So we certainly don't want to move somebody from that place to a place where they're taking prep and not using condoms. That's not the idea here. Okay. The idea is that we take somebody who isn't using condoms all of the time and we get them onto prep to keep them safe from HIV during that time. And what we're trying to do is encourage them to use condoms more. So okay. for someone who is taking PrEP, we're going to see them every three months. They'll come to us here uh, for an appointment and we will do HIV and STI testing. But we'll also work with them to try and reduce their risk. So we will look at why, why is this not happening? Why are you not using condoms? What can we do? to try and increase your condom use okay and I mean it might it might may not be that condom use or sexual risk is the is the issue it might be needle use um so you know that's a case of linking them to treatment if they're ready certainly getting them connected with with syringe and needle exchange but we're trying to bring people's risk down can a person um, who hears this interview go to their private physician and ask for prep or do they need to come to upstate they could certainly go to their own physician and ask for PrEP. I don't think they necessarily will get very far, unfortunately. We're still, a lot of physicians are not willing to um, prescribe PrEP. I, I think there's, they feel there's a little bit too much that goes okay. with it. We would love more physicians to be providing PrEP. We really would. And certainly any providers who are interested, they can also connect with us and we will help to get them set up. We want more PrEP providers in Syracuse. At the moment, there are two main providers in Syracuse. Um, here at Upstate University Hospital, um, we have pe our pediatric infectious disease um, department providing PrEP. And we also have immune health services, which is providing PrEP for those uh, people 24 years of age and older. And we also in Syracuse have the STD Center, which is in the basement of the Civic Center. They okay. will provide PrEP as well. So a phone number for people to learn more information mm -hmm. might be 315-464-8668? Absolutely. Or the people can contact me directly, 315-571-0013. Okay. And that's a number people can call or text. So if they're interested in, in an appointment for PrEP, you Wonderful. can give me a call or send me a text message and I will set you up with an appointment. Well, thank you, Nikki. I appreciate you being here. This has been Amber Smith speaking about HIV testing and the medication PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, with education specialist Nikki Jennings for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next, why patients should be concerned about physician burnout. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. A researcher spoke at the American Medical Association annual meeting last year to an audience of physicians and health executives. If I told you we had a system issue that affected quality of care, limited access to care, and eroded patient satisfaction, he said, you would immediately assign a team of systems engineers, physicians, and administrators to fix that problem rapidly, he said, arguing that physician burnout is a system issue but we have not mobilized the way we would to address other factors affecting quality, access, and patient satisfaction. Here to talk about the rising prevalence and severity of physician burnout and what can be done about it are psychologist Ronald Fish, the Clinical Director of Psychological Healthcare Mental Health Service, and Dr. Mickey Leibowitz, an endocrinologist and clinical quality medical director at Krauss Hospital and the author of a book called Losing My Patients, Why I Quit the Medical Game. Welcome to both of you. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Good. Thanks for having us. All right, so I wanted to start with each of you explaining why you have an interest in this subject of what we'll call physician wellness or physician burnout. Ron, starting with you. Well, for me, it's a way to give back. Uh, personally, uh, since the day I moved into Syracuse 32 years ago, I was privileged to be treated by a wonderful physician, Dr. Lewis Green, who gave us all every day. He recently retired after 12 to 14 our days, week after week after week. And he was successful with me, except not really knowing what to do about hair loss. <laughs> and professionally, my career has been filled with working with physicians, psychological health care, and addressing burnout. Um, and I like to think of it as promoting wellness, increasing resilience, is a way to help the, these wonderful providers and also improve patient health. Okay. Yeah. All right. Dr. Lewis? Well, I was just, just going to add to Ron's comments because Ron is too humble to say that he's been work, he worked for 18 years at St. Joe's with uh, the residents there. I don't know if you wanted to uh, add back on that. We worked with the psychosocial aspects of the doctor-patient relationship. So part of it was helping them with wellness, but also about uh, how to uh, work with colleagues, improve patient care. Okay. Uh, yeah. Great. Great. Back to me. Right. Yeah. So I actually have two, two, two reasons for it. The first one is personal. You mentioned, and I appreciate you mentioning my book, Losing My Patience. And if anybody out there, even one person buys my book, you'll have doubled my sales. <laughs> so please feel free. Um, so uh, back in 2009, I left my practice after almost 17 years of being in practice. And it was a gut-wrenching decision. Um, in the book, I describe how the other team of reg government regulators, malpractice attorneys, uh, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, really impa negatively impacted my experience. And so I put some So of that's that, why you left? Uh, well, uh, in many respects, I put blame on them. Uh, as it turns out now, we have to reading a lot about burnout, and, uh, and now that it's become uh, more known, well-known, I think 
uh, now nine, ten years later, I could say probably at that particular time, even though all those things existed and they still exist mm -hmm. to some uh, level, I probably was burnt out. But, you know, at that particular time, given what Ron said, you know, as physicians, we you couldn't really admit that you were burnt out. You know, given the stoicism of medicine, you couldn't admit to being, uh, you know, really at a level where you just had a hard time getting through. So, so you just threw in... You <clears throat> I walked away. Altogether. Yeah, I looked at it and I said, you know, the future looked uh, didn't look bright. It was um, didn't look sustainable to work, as as Ron said with Dr. Green. I was working. Lou and I were partners. We worked very long hours, and I looked at the future of medicine and I said, really, it's not you know not meeting my expectations, and um, the hours were not sustainable. And living in that environment, I didn't think it was sustainable. I, had, I I just had to find another way. And so happily, which leads me to the second reason why I wanted to uh, do this course is. I had the good fortune of being hired at Krauss Hospital as a quality director. And as a quality director, I get a chance to come out of my bubble in my private practice and see how a lot of the other docs really are functioning. A lot of the other docs, unfortunately, these are great people who are beaten down, broken up, and, and burnt out. And uh, as a quality director, in order to achieve a great level of quality, you have to have, you have to be okay. You have to be well, because right. if you are just uh, struggling, then you can't be your best when your best is needed. And frankly, you always need to be your best when you're taking care of patients. You can't take a, okay, for you, I'm going to take this, 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 this moment off. I can't give you my best. Everybody expects your best. So you can't achieve the level of quality that you really want to achieve unless you are well. So in your role now, are you, do you see patients or... You it's a whole different type of medicine that you're doing Right. Now. So happily, I still have the opportunity to uh, use my specialty of endocrinology, which is a fabulous specialty. And I get to see uh, cons consultations in the hospital, so okay. people with diabetes or thyroid problems, adrenal problems, whatever. And that is, uh, uh, that's great for me because I, I really love my specialty and I love the practice of medicine. I think that it was a great choice. Uh, but I think that we have to understand really what it takes to deliver the great level of care that pe that we expect as physicians and what patients expect as people okay. who are receiving care. Well, let's talk a little bit about how, basically, how bad is it in terms of physician burnout? Because there's a lot of research on this. Right. So you um, you can't pick up a, a layperson's journal like the Time Magazine or Wall Street Journal. You can't pick up a, a medical journal without having an article about physician burnout. So with uh, it's, it's widespread that way. It's well known. And also, there have been 18 books published since 2012 about physician burnout. Wow. So it's, it's well described. It's well known. And it tells you, just based upon the amount of information that's being published, how common the problem is. So the most recent study came from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. In 20, it was published in 2015 about physician burnout. And they compared their results uh, to 2011. In 2011, 45% uh, of physicians uh, noted that they were burnt out. And there's a definition of burnout, and Ron could probably well, talk I was going to ask more. if we can for a minute. Ron, yeah. can you interject what is burnout? Is it, is it like depression? or what? I mean, there's a technical definition for it, right? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a loss of um, meaning, uh, okay. feeling like you're not doing anything, feeling like you're not succeeding. And it's, there's an element of depersonalization. We might tend to see uh, patients as uh, less um, than they are, less, less real, human less, or less human. Yes, mm. yes. Um, or as objects, or as diseases. You know, she's the one with the gallbladder. You don't even know her name. She's the gallbladder problem, that type of thing. A failure of empathy, and a loss of energy. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it probably there's other health professions as well. Is this an issue for nurses or? technicians or other healthcare providers? Do you see that as well? We see it throughout. 
Okay. And I, I'm gratified that people are starting to take notice of this. It's like um, we're allowed now to have emotions, right? The world is recognizing that, that uh, we're not just technicians, that we're alive. And okay, so, so what do we need to do to recharge our batteries? What do we need to do to be well? Well, hold that thought for a minute, and let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on air, and we're talking with Syracuse psychologist Ronald Fish and doctor and author uh, Mickey Leibowitz about the issue of physician burnout and physician wellness. Um, so let me ask this real quick. How can a patient tell if their physician is burned out, and, and should they be concerned that perhaps their physician is burned out? Is it, a, is it an issue that's of importance to patients? It's a great question. I think that what's happened with uh, patients and in concert with the medical profession and mental health is that patients are becoming better consumers. Patients are encouraged to bring uh, collateral to the visits because everybody gets nervous going to the doctor, right? So you want to have somebody to take notes. And um, patients should, if there's any difficulty, patients should have an honest, direct, respectful conversation with their provider and try to see what's going on. Okay. But doc- doctors could be good at hiding it, but if you, f- you know, there are some telltale signs that physicians, you know, if they're, if the physician is, you know, uh, dis- is disengaged or it's hard, you're, hard, you're having a hard time connecting, mm. it, it could be personalities, but it could also be, you know, some of the, the signs of, of, um, of a physician being uh, uh, burnt out. And Especially uh, if it's someone you've been going to for years, exactly. and you have a relationship, and things start changing. Exactly. Yeah. Some yeah, patients would patients are very observant. Uh, even when I was in practice, they would say, "Hey, Doctor Libos, are you okay today? Uh, you, you know, it looks like you're you know uh, you're not smiling today. What's going on?" So people you know people are observant. They'll pick mm-hmm. up things, and the consequence of uh, going to a burned out physician uh, could be that the level of care might not be exactly what the patients uh, would want or hope to get, uh, because it's really hard to give your best when, when you're not at your best, just like we said before. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. So pe- uh, when study- you're dealing with healthcare though, that could be kind of a life and death decision or, or situation yeah, that you exactly. put yourself in. If Yeah. So, so adherence to medications might be uh, less or following instructions might be, you know, that less or mis- medical errors might be greater. So, you know, people really need to be on, on alert for that. Yeah. This is one of the reasons that we're, that psychological health care is working with medical practices so that we have um, mental health providers, behavioral health uh, consultants in the medical practices to assist with this. I mean, doctors are too busy now. You know, the primary care doc might see the patient every, what, 12 minutes? Mm-hmm. And how do you get everything in? And so part of this is a reorganization of uh, the medical delivery service so that patients' needs, and we're talking about doctors' needs here, but they're inextricably intertwined. You know, so how can we address uh, the human condition? Right. So what, so what practically is being done to help physicians who are burned out, and what's being done to help prevent physicians from burning out? You've got some ideas of things that you're doing locally, right? Well, we're offering some courses. Mm-hmm. So glad you asked. <laughs> Just by chance, you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so we're uh, currently uh, working with the course at Onondaga County Medical Society and also at Krause Hospital. And Mickey and I together have developed a course to help promote resiliency. So it's a six-session course. We're offering it uh, each session a month apart. Two meetings focus on the individual so that 
the individual physicians become more aware of what we call the resilience zone. Not that we develop this, but it's a common term. But the sense of calmness and, and wellness and balance inside. Two sessions on interpersonal relationships, uh, relationships with, with uh, colleagues, staff, patients, and others. And then two, se- two sessions on how to uh, promote wellness in the culture. Interesting. How do you get physicians to admit that this would be a class they should go to? Well, what we've um, the way the course is outlined is uh, physicians are very, very interested in delivering quality care. Sure. So we have as the ultimate goal is to deliver quality care. And to Ron's point, how do you deliver quality care? You have to have the right culture. You have to be in the right environment. If you're in a destructive environment, then quality care will suffer. So we say that culture drives quality. Then you might ask, well, what drives culture? What drives culture is relationships. And if you have good relationships, the culture will thrive. Quality will thrive. If you have bad relationships, the culture will, will, uh, will be compromised. And last but not least is what drives relationships is the individual. So the individual has to be in a good mindset, a good frame. Uh, to have a good relationship. It's hard to have a good relationship if you're burnt out. So we say that individual drives relationships, relationships drive culture, culture drives quality. So what we're, the hook that we have for our physicians is how do you be your best when your best is needed and to deliver that quality care, and we're hoping that that's the hook. So when we talk about promoting resiliency, is that something that um, – it takes a long time to learn and absorb, or is there are, are there things that you can do each morning to sort of build yourself up with resiliency for the day? I'd say yes to all of that. To all of it. You know, it's simple concepts, and it takes practice, and that's what we emphasize mm-hmm. in the course. We talk about this concept of the resilience zone. We talk about something happens, a stressor, a crisis, threat occurs, and you get bumped out of your resilience zone. Well, bumped out of your resilience zone really means kind of like the fight-flight. You've heard of fight-flight. So what happens with fight-flight is our sympathetic nervous system gets activated. We might start breathing hard. When uh, we get startled or under stress or something. Yes. So just imagine driving here today, and it looked like a car is going to hit you. you, you, Right. Now, at that moment, your heart rate goes up, your, your eyes widen, you know, and this is all been hardwired into us for millennia to protect us from threat. But the thing is, if it keeps happening over and over and over throughout the day, then, then it has consequences. And just think, in that moment when it looked like that car was going to hit you, could you be uh, preparing for this radio show? Could you be you know, um, you know, preparing your taxes or making medical decisions? No. And so the idea is to help people recognize uh, when they're in the resilience zone or when they're bumped out. And if they're bumped out, we teach them strategies to help them get back in mm. so that they can have access to the higher levels of their interesting uh, decision-making. Well, thanks. This all sounds very interesting. Um, we've run out of time, but um, we will link to psychological health care. Is that where people healthcare. can find yes. more information on our website, which is um, healthlinkonair.org. Um, this has been Amber Smith speaking about physician wellness and physician burnout with psychologist Ronald Fish and Dr. Mickey Leibowitz for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Healing can take many forms. We know how caregivers can help those who are ill. We know that sometimes just bearing witness can provide a sacred moment of relief, reliefs, or hope. I have two poems that illustrate such power. The first is from Irish poet Ted McCarthy, who lives in Clonez, Ireland. He's working on his third collection there. His poem, Jigsaw, paints a dramatic portrait of a child locked into his own world, working on a puzzle, while those who love him watch in agonized anticipation of his success. Here is Jigsaw. The clock ticks on the crossing of the threshold, and the boy with the tick, who measures time by the rise and fall of glucose in his blood, is seated at an unfamiliar table. A jigsaw piece is righted on the axle of his fingers. It glides like a spaceship over 30 possibilities. The picture lid has been turned to the wall. He pins together a world that was never whole, while the world as he knows it watches what it cannot fathom. We are a sea to him, a succession of waves, now comforting, rocking, now buffeting him with the unexpected, that enemy which startles him into consciousness each morning. What will happen? Where will it come from? And even becalmed, the slightest sound, birdsong, a distant car, snaps him into alertness, his head tilting noiseward like any prey. And for that heartbeat, we are all children, fearful, tense. This is as much as we know. Everything is stopped, waiting for his muscles to thaw back into movement. It happens invisibly, like a breath exhaled. His company gathers itself into an edgy sense of balance. And the piece now wafts like a feather, now jerks, lands again and again where it makes no sense, then settles where it fits, not to the eye of right, but snug, a primal hug, a belonging. His body relaxes, eyes flutter, always a dawn. The second poem is by Kathleen Kelly, whose most recent work has appeared in Chautauqua, the Sufi Journal, and Persimmon Tree. Her poem, Prognosis, lets us share a hallowed moment of rest between two people in a hospital room, one who is ill, the other who is the protector and helpmeet. Here is Prognosis for K and S. The curtain is drawn around the bed. The light's so dim when I enter the hospital room, I think for a minute I might be too late and almost turn away. But there they are. Blue hospital pajamas on the patient, asleep in the recliner. Street clothes on the woman asleep in the bed. Both facing the wall, bed and recliner united, locked hands between them. Indeed, they are up against a wall. And yet, if I could paint them, I would not portray them as prisoners of time, for which they care little. I would render them just starting out, surprise on their faces, hiking the Mohawk Trail with notebooks, intent on recording the girths of a few tall trees, red maple, white ash, bitternut hickory, late in the fall when the leaves are gone and nothing stops the light from reaching them.
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore what it means to be born intersex and we get an update on the Zika virus. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.